Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake. Thanks for joining us. Um, unfortunately, I didn't play the disclaimer tonight, but remember that the views expressed on this show are uh, the, that of the individual hosts and not necessarily that of the station uh, or station affiliates um, of Sepia Radio. So, And also, I want to thank Sepia just at the top of the show today for syndicating us as usual. Uh, again, I, I am your host, Jake, and of course, joining me is the founder of Dose Nation and co-host of the podcast, James Kent. Uh, James, how are you? I'm doing great today. Thanks. Good to be here. Good to be talking with you again. Um, so right off the bat, I want to just say if anybody wants to send in questions, uh, you can do so at questions at dosenation.com, questions at dosenation.com. That's where you can find we should, we should set up the topic too. Of course, yeah. The, but 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 I just want to make sure everybody has that email uh, and write it down now so, so um, a, as we get into the topic, you can send your questions accordingly. So tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about DMT, dimethyltryptamine, as well as ayahuasca. Um, there are a lot of questions that, we, that, that we're going to try to get to tonight um, on, on both subjects, um, you know. And, of course, if you have any questions at any point during the show, send them in and we'll get to them um, you know, as they pertain to the, to, to the discussion. And if we have time at the end of the program, uh, we can just go through them. So, so James, let's, let's start off. Let, let me actually ask you a question. And I know that, that there was a little bit of, of a discussion of this before. Why are there so many people interested in DMT? And there are some people who have been the chief kind of proponents of dimethyltryptamine or who, or whose names are associated with research, you know, Terrence McKenna, Rick Strassman, uh, ayahuasca tourism, uh, you know, DMT, the spirit molecule, those are really the ones that a lot of people would know, you know, even a regular person might know about. So, yeah, I think the fascination with DMT has been kicking around since the 90s when Terrence McKenna was out doing his speaking tours to promote his books. Um, I think it was True Hallucinations was the first big book tour he did where he was speaking about DMT. Um, and he would speak about it in terms of this gateway to the hyperdimensional elf space where the elves would sing to you. And there's a great, there's a whole lot of Hans McKenna raps out there on tape that you can listen to or go back on stream on the internet. And so that's, I think, where people first started hearing about DMT, which, which was from Darren's McKenna. Of course, back in the 60s, DMT was floating around. There wasn't a single person who was the, you know, the high priest of DMT. It just sort of trickled among people who were in the know. More recently, the Spirit Molecule movie came out. And when that came out a few years ago, I think it was 2010, <clears throat> There was a little bit of a splash. DMT hit popular culture again. But more recently, it's come out on DVD. It's available on demand. You can stream it on iTunes. It shows up on playlists. And so now, because I'm in that movie, I have a, like a 40-second soundbite, I think, in that movie. Uh, people write to me, people who would normally not be interested in DMT or psychedelics, but they saw the movie. They may be... They maybe rented it or they streamed it or they were at a friend's house and now they're completely fascinated with it. And maybe they hear Joe Rogan talking about it on his podcast. Maybe they've heard some of the mythology that's come out of Rick Strassman's book, The Spirit Molecule, which the movie was based on. And now I think it's with ayahuasca and the ayahuasca tourism. 
people are just really fascinated with DMT and want to know what it's about. And the, and the reason that I say that is because I'm getting more personal correspondence on the subject than I think I've ever gotten in my life. So I know for a fact right now it's pretty it's a pretty hot topic out in public culture. And I wanted to address some of the uh, some of the knowledge that's floating around out there and see if we can come to some you know kind of kind of bring the mythology down down to reality and see if we can you know, put DMT in the proper place in the in intellectual sphere. And uh, that's why I think uh, I think mostly the Spirit Molecule movie and Rick Strassman um, in his book are are probably what fueled the most the most basic of the modern fascination with the drug. Yeah, I mean, I'm not as as familiar with 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 DMT as you are probably, and I haven't really done as much of the reading on it as 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 you probably have, but. Um, there is, but, but you have personal experience with DMT, um, that goes past just, you know, watching the movie and doing a little bit of research. Right. I had, uh, I, I had tried DMT before I ever heard of Rick Strassman. Uh, I think it was hearing Terrence McKenna made me seek it out to begin with. But what I wound up being in the Spirit Molecule movie because I have tried it and I've written on it, I've published it, and I, I'm more of a contrarian in the field than most of the people in that movie who will straight up say things like smoking DMT puts you in immediate contact with the spirit dimension that we can't normally see. And they'll say something like the ancestors of our, you know, the, our dead relatives, the souls of our ancestors live there. Or aliens from another dimension live there, or aliens from another planet communicate through that channel. And I'm I'm much more grounded in in biology. I I tend to 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 not go so much for spiritual metaphors because I don't really find them completely. I don't find them really to be very accurate descriptions when you get right down to it. Uh, and uh, I had tried DM a few times before I ever heard of Rick Strassman's spirit molecule theory. And the conclusion that I came to after trying it was that it was a really bizarre and crazy experience. It wasn't anything, it wasn't like anything that I had ever tried before. Um, and when Strassman started speculating that DMT was produced in the pineal gland, it may, and it may even be released while we're sleeping, I thought to myself, well, that's ridiculous. I have never in my life ever naturally experienced anything that felt anything like a DMT experience. Dreams are not DMT experiences. Um, and, and I don't believe my pineal gland creates DMT because otherwise I would have had a DMT trip at some point in my life that I would be able to compare this to. But the DMT, is, DMT trip is not comparable to anything. It's not an out-of-body experience. It's not a near-death experience. It's not a communion with an alien or a, or a spirit mind. It is a weirdly strange physiological hallucinogenic experience that defies simple definitions like, you know, hyperspatial elves or, or cartoon images like that. So when DMT started becoming popular, it had this spirit mythology attached to it. And I always thought that spirit mythology was incorrect or inadequate to describe what was going on. So the reason I was contacted to be involved in the Spirit Molecule movie was because when they were putting together all the final interviews, they realized, oh, everybody that we've interviewed 
is pretty much on board with our agenda. Everybody is sort of going along with, with the mythology that we're creating and just sort of chiming in like a chorus. We don't have anybody who's providing a counter or a negative view to that. Let's call James Kent and have, it, have him interviewed. Well, I don't think I had a very good interview. I think most of my interview was cut because I don't really show up very much in the, in the movie. Yeah, I've actually seen the movie, and I and I don't know how many times I saw you in it. I I know that you that, that there's an entire, um, uh, the, the, I think the whole interview, at least parts of it, is uploaded on YouTube. Right, parts of it are on YouTube. There's longer there's longer segments of me talking about it in other places, but. Usually when you do these kind of things, you're, put, you're putting a chair with a camera in front of you, and then somebody feeds you a lot of really leading questions that you have to untangle. So I don't think I ever really got to the message that I was invited to give for that particular movie, which was my own personal take on the, on the subject, or uh, a more biological or physiological take that didn't step immediately into realms of spirit and spirit uh, <laughs> talking to spirits and spirituality. Um, so my personal experience with it has been that um, the first time I tried it, it was very much exactly like the way Terrence McKenna explained it. But looking back on it, I realized that that was very much a matter of suggestibility. I mean, I was very much expecting that sort of thing to happen. I was expecting to see elves, and I was expecting to kind of trip out on these mystical experiences, which I did. But I had the opportunity to try it many, many times over the course of the next few months. And no time was similar to the first time. Each time was very, very different. And each time was very, very influenced by what I was thinking about, set and setting. So I didn't have the Terrence McKenna trip with elves and spirits every time. I only had that one time. And every other trip was very, very different than that. So I began to realize that there was a certain suggestibility to the experience. There was a plasticity to the experience so that if you tell somebody that they're going to see elves and hyperspatial entities, or if you tell somebody they're going to go into a parallel world where the spirits of their ancestors exist, that's the sort of trip that they're going to get out of it. And what I found was that if I studied math or particle physics for an hour before I smoked some DMT, I would trip out on math and particle physics. I would see little particles and little mathematical formulas for curves and stuff and the way that particles interacted and flew off of each other. And that came out of my own mind. I'm not, I'm, I don't believe that, that, that aliens from another dimension were showing me subatomic particles. And I don't believe that I was actually seeing subatomic particles. I believe that I was dreaming very highly realistic, detailed pictures of what subatomic particles do when they interact based on what I had been reading previously in the day. So, so your so your DMT experience is directly correlated with the with the subject matter that you had been dealing with in the hours or the days prior to your taking of the actual DMT. Right, and there was one time when I was very I was uh, I was concerned that my wife, who was my then girlfriend, we hadn't been married yet, might be pregnant or might. Uh, <sighs> I don't remember what the exact situation was, but there was a situation where we were talking, either talking about having children or she was concerned that she might be pregnant. And later that evening, um, after we had both, you know, gone and 
gone back to doing whatever we were doing. I smoked a little DMT and I felt like I was a child in a womb. And that there was like a big loving mother presence all around me. And it's funny, I looked on my desk and the CD that was sitting on my desk, you can date this trip now because the CD that was sitting on my desk was a CD that I just bought earlier that week. It was In Utero by Nirvana. Oh. So all of these little synchronicities about this being a baby in utero trip came together when I smoked the DMT and suddenly I felt like I was a baby in utero. But I don't believe I was actually experiencing the mind of a baby in utero. I, I just believe I was influenced and suggested to have that trip based on the factors that were all around me. So really the the experience is based on your own internal um, philosophical musings or you know whatever you're doing at the time. Right. It's the set and set it. The information is, is the information is not coming from some kind of external source that's going it's coming from within you. Right. But if you don't realize it's coming from within you, the information is presented to you in a DMT trip as if it's coming from outside of you. Just like you could be having a dream where you're in a conversation with somebody and that person tells you something that you may not have considered before and you wake up and go, oh, my God, that's true. That person in your dream was still you talking to you. It was just information that was presented to you as if it weren't you. It was encapsulated in another person so that when you heard that information, it struck you a different way than if you had just thought of it yourself. And the brain allows you to do this. The brain allows you to perceive information that you dream up yourself as if it's coming from someplace else. That's the, and, and I think DMT and all psychedelics really pick up on this process of externalizing that thought and projecting back to you projecting it back to you in a way that has a very uh, deep emotional theatricality to it so that when it's presented to you, it's like a spirit wrote it for you, like a special poem, even though it came out of your own unconscious. And it's hard to believe, oh my God, I have my, my subconscious has the power to write this special visual poem that relates exactly to my life. But it does. I mean, that's, we, we do it every night when we dream. Um, it becomes more spectacular uh, on psychedelics because we're awake and there's all of these geometrical visuals that go along with it. Although I have to say I've had many trips where I've smoked DMT and there was nothing visual at all going on. It was all something I felt in my skin or in my body. Or I think you had mentioned before some people talk, feel about like leaving their body or that their consciousness like like lifts up out of their body a little bit. Um, all of those are, are, are experiences that go with the DMT trip that aren't really classified in this, in these, yeah. these, these spirit molecule descriptions. Um, you can have a very spiritual feeling, but that doesn't mean that you're actually mediating something about the soul leaving the body. That those are, those are tricks that the brain can play on itself that are exploited by the DMT experience. So really what you're doing is, is it's 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 not an experience that is being produced by some kind of external thing you're just kind of making these these things up in your head as you go along but it's so it's such a powerful experience that you interpret it as be is is coming from an external source it's literally impossible to believe that your brain could be producing all of that information at once but see uh, if you but reading your book it becomes more possible i think 
Well, yeah, I mean, my book is basically an examination of how the brain can actually produce that that much information at once. It can it can be triggered into these 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 feedback states where information is amplified over the course of a period of many seconds into this this fugue state, um, and that's that's a, a pretty general description of what happens on the on DMT as it comes on. It starts with just a simple buzzing or a, or a feeling of lightness in the body. And then that buzzing of feeling or feeling of lightness coalesces into something that's almost like a liquid. It just almost l- turns from like a fog of, of, of this, this tingling feeling into almost like a liquid, like you're underwater or your, 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 your skin is covered by this liquid thing. And then all of the textures of everything around you becomes kind of liquidy. Like it's like it's pulsing with a fluid, or it's organic, or it's alive, and there's a very sort of weird sense of how time and matter are all connected into some huge organism, and those things are all there on the DMT trip. It's not like the people are people are just making it up when they say there's something spiritual about it, or I feel connected to some huge super organism, or something like that. All of those feelings do come through. Um, it's just that jumping to the conclusion that it's spirit-based as opposed to something that's generated from your brain is a it, – it's a leap that I've never really been able to take because I know that my brain is capable of doing all of this stuff because when I get into these states, I can make minor adjustments to my brain and the states change. And uh, having that kind of power and understanding that it's coming from my own brain – it is, I think, a much more self-actualizing experience than feeling like I'm being overwhelmed by some spirit entity external to me that I have no control over. Right, and it may also improve the um, feelings on the trip itself and the overall well-being of you know your mental well-being during the experience as well. Um, by having well, this this in, this utero trip that I had. I felt very much like I was connected to like something like an alien mothership that might have been hovering up in orbit somewhere. And I was encased in a, con- a cocoon of its awareness and that it was in psychic contact with me. And then it could like, ex- it could just like teleport me up there anytime it wanted to and do work on me and then send me back down into my body. And after that trip, I felt very traumatized. Like I didn't know how to parse that experience. I didn't know how to put that feeling into language that didn't sound like I was completely crazy because in retrospect, as I speak it, it sounds completely crazy. I do not believe there is an alien mothership in low earth orbit ready to suck my soul up. But at the time when I was on DMT, it felt very much exactly like that to the point where it was almost undeniable. And uh, when you have that kind of experience, I can't just turn to my girlfriend or call my friend up on the phone and say, Hey, do you think there's an alien mothership up in orbit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, some you know what? But, but do you know you what? Here's your the thing. own words, and you think, "Oh my God, that's just ridiculous." But there are people who who would say to you, "Yes, there is an alien mothership in orbit, an uh, invisible alien mothership." Well, I don't know about monitoring an, I would, my, my state all the time. Well, I don't know about that, but I mean, I think that there are people who believe that there are. Um, I, I don't know which. I can't remember which which UFO researcher said this. I think it actually may have been John Lear 
Uh, he said, um, if you turned a light switch on, he said, this, you, know, you know, if you could turn a light switch on, which would, you know, reveal all of the UFOs in, a, in the sky at any given time, that the sky would be completely blacked out by all the aircraft in the, you know, in the vicinity. Um, well, that's pretty hardcore speculation. I don't know if I would go there, but um, anyway, so what, what? basically what I'm saying is that. Well, and, and I'm, you know, again, be, it's a speculation. Could, no matter no matter. Even though I can say to myself logically, oh, this is just a delusion that my brain is sending me, or this is just some sort of metaphoric information that my brain is presenting to me on this drug, the the experience of it is real. And when you walk out of the experience of it, you I, I feel traumatized, like I've just been uh, – I feel like I've just had an alien abduction experience, even though I was just sitting in my office for 10 minutes. And it's very hard to cope with that when you when you think, okay, well, all I did was smoke a drug, and now I feel like I was abducted by aliens in some weird psychic way, and I feel a little bit psychically violated, and I also feel um, like what the fuck is going on because uh, I, I know rationally there shouldn't be aliens or a mothership in Earth orbit, and it's not even like I feel I felt like it was aliens. It just felt like there was some big, huge, overpowering, ominous presence, like a big magnet in the sky that was pulling my awareness upwards. And and I just sort of characterized that as alien mothership because I was in this sort of uterus womb mentality uh, as the trip started. But, you know, when you get a little distance from those experiences or when I get a little distance from those experiences, I think back and go, oh, yes, those were all products of what I was going through at the time. Those were just extrapolations of my own mindset and the own things, my own mythologies that I was caught up in in the time. So and like I said, that that particular DMT trip was the only time I felt something like that. Other DMT trips, I didn't feel anything like that at all. So I can't draw any solid conclusions based on that one trip other than every trip is typified by the circumstances that go into starting it. So every so so every trip, every experience, every individual um exploration right. of that nature is just is simply going going to be, you know, in simple terms is just going to be affected by whatever is on your mind that day, by whatever is filling your consciousness. Sure, and there could be some randomness to it. I mean, randomness does come out of it every once in a while. But I would be more, I mean, I would be on board the spirit molecule hypothesis. If every time I smoked DMT, I saw the elves and had the elf trip and nothing else ever happened. If it was just, if it was just repeatable, sustainable, and every time the exact same thing happened, that would be amazing to me. And that would be worth, you know, running out to the world and saying, oh, my God, this is the most amazing thing in the world. Everybody who tries this has the same exact experience. And it's it's spiritual and it's magical and it's wonderful. And I think that's what a lot of people on the hype, the DMT hype machine are saying. But I don't think that's accurate. I don't think everybody has the same experience. I don't think everybody has the same experience every time. I think maybe one out of five or ten experiences are over the top through the roof. You know, you have elves and spirits jumping out of your chest and the, you know, Amazonian snake gods crawling through your kundalini spiral. But, but, uh, but that's like the very rare experience. Other times you may be staring into a giant void of black noise or, like I said, seeing subatomical particle collisions or, 
you know, I had, I had one, I smoked DMT once and I just saw like sort of weird hunched over potato people shuffling around like they were standing in a waiting room for something. And I was like, well, what the heck is going on here? And that lasted maybe two or three minutes and then it was gone. So come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's no uniformity to the experience in the right, sense yeah, that everybody. This is, this is another great one is I was working on a car all day and I smoked some DMT at night and I saw this huge engine block that was just gears and pistons and and, and it was like this weird trance video of gears and pistons and and like a motor running that was like a visualization of my body like speeding up as I smoked the DMT. I could just see like pistons and like rotors spinning and gears and teeth grinding. And that had nothing to do with any kind of spirit dimension. It was purely, you know, mechanical hallucination related to what I was feeling in my body parsed through this idea of a car motor that I was, that I was obsessing about earlier in the day. So, uh, because I have like uh, the perspicacity to look back on my experiences and kind of unravel w where the archetypes or the themes came from when I smoked them, I realize that a lot of it has to do with suggestibility. It's very much a suggestibility thing. And if you give somebody DMT in a package with the spirit molecule mythology saying, oh, this is what it does. It's the spirit molecule. It's going to make you have a spiritual experience. You're going to reproduce that experience in That's right. People. It becomes a meme. It becomes a meme that can, that can travel from person to person and replicate itself. Well, with that in mind, though, right? Now, so... Basically, what, 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 from, from what you've said, we can then say that the experience itself is suggestible and many people who read or who watch or engage in the spirit molecule mythology or the spirit molecule idea will have their experience influenced by that simply by the fact that that is what their background or introduction to DMT is. Right. And there may be people who have never had any background or introduction to DMT who try it and have a spiritual experience because that is one of the possible experiences that you can have. But you can be another person and have it and have a very nightmarish experience, very frightening and not spiritual experience. Or you can try it and just have like a mediocre experience where you go, well, I felt something. My head felt light and dizzy. I got this weird buzzy feeling and then I kind of had a headache afterwards and I'm not sure what happened. Um, and that's, you know, not covered in the spirit molecule literature. That's just not an option in the literature for you to have a halfway trip where something happened, but you don't know. You don't tell, you don't have people in the spirit molecule movie telling you that that's the experience that you're going to get. But many people get that exact experience. Right. And is it possible <laughs> that they're getting this experience uh, instead of through some genuine, you know, uh, external force that it's just simply coming from the, for lack of a better word, the mythology that they've been accustomed to. Yeah. I mean, because there are people I, I've met who do ayahuasca and smoke DMT and, and this is true. I ask them, so what is it that you're trying to get in touch with? And they say, well, I do it because it allows my heart to open up to Christ's love. And when I take ayahuasca, I feel the love of Christ. I feel like I, I'm in the loving embrace of Christ. So they're Christians 
who use ayahuasca as their spiritual tool to feel that, that Christ mind, which is antithetical to the sort of pantheist or pagan ideals that you get from traditional ayahuasca heroes or the spirit molecule mythology that says that, you know, elves or insects or crazy creatures from another dimension are at the source of the experience. Now, if, if you think Christ is at the source of the experience, then it's Christ and that's what you'll get. Well, here's you know what. Let me let me actually make a um, let me make a, uh, a quick suggestion. And again, we're speculating, but maybe the source itself has no particular form, or it has no particular you know way of its own, but rather takes the form of that which the practitioner is most accustomed to. Or yeah, that's that's possible. Or it takes the form of that which whatever the practitioner would be comfortable with. So if a Christian or a Muslim, or a Jew, or a Roman pagan, or a you know Gaelic pagan, or whatever. If they take ayahuasca, or if they take DMT, or if they take you know any other variety of that, and their experience ends up, uh, you know, I don't know, the Roman pagan see you know sees and speaks with Jupiter Optimus Maximus, uh, and the Christian speaks with Christ, and the Celtic pagan, or you know the the Nordic pagan speaks with Odin. Maybe they're coming as representations of this formless thing, right? That doesn't have a form of its own, but has, but, but is some source of gnosis in which these people are, are, when they access it, it's being presented to, to, to them in a way in which they are familiar. Because, okay. you know, think I about. I can take that so far, but when I have a, I have a trip where I see gears and pistons grinding, skulls through you know uh, a heavy metal meat grinder that's all this this twisted iconography that has nothing to do with with jesus or the saints or spirits or gods or anything i have to question where the information is coming from i don't feel like it's a conduit from a spirit world i feel like it's a conduit from something deeper inside of me well here's and if i want to channel it in a spiritual direction it can be channeled in a spiritual direction but if i want to channel it into something that's more more um you know there's a lot of um kind of graphic and um i don't know even what the word for it is um disgusting grotesque imagery that comes through psychedelic experiences that uh, you know i don't i don't relate to god or spirituality at all i mean just like maggot-eaten corpses and, you know, huge Terminator-style scenes of death and destruction. Um, those, you know, all play into archetypes of birth and re-death, I mean, death and rebirth, and, you know, the internal wars and plagues and conflicts, but it's not necessarily spiritual. It's it's just weird. It's just weird and bizarre and like a, like a, like a David Lynch movie, you know? It's crazy and weird and psychedelic, but it's not spiritual. And so when you have experiences like that, you, 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 your mythology has to start expanding itself to say, well, maybe there is a god of gears and machinery, and you were channeling that god when you had your experience. Or maybe god was, was showing himself to you through the form of gears and machinery, because that's what you were doing that day. So he figured that you could you could perceive the information better if he if he came to you in the form of gears and machinery. And that seems like a very kind of elaborate description to go through where God could have just appeared to me as God and said, Hey, what's up? 
You know, why did he have to come at me as gears and machinery? It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense in a rational uh, parsing. Well, let me, you know, again, it's not, you know, again, we're, we're, I, I, I don't want to get stuck. But you know, it's easy to get pulled into these kind of questions because you, because it's, you're talking about spirituality and you're talking about gnosis. And when people take psychedelic drugs, they always want, I mean, especially in the West, Western, this modern Western view of psychedelic drugs is I want to take the drug so it will show me something that I've never seen before. I want to see something new. I want to learn. I want to uncover some mystery. I want to see something crazy and bizarre beyond the realm of what is already known that will that will stun me and give me a sense of mystery and, and magic to the world again. And psychedelics will do all that. But I'm not necessarily sure that the source of that magic and mystery is, is anything more than your own internal desires and your own biological uh, – we have biological mechanisms which create profound spiritual experiences. Um, and you can, you can you know, push a wire into your temporal lobe and crank up the voltage and you can manufacture one of these crazy spiritual experiences where a person believes that they're in the presence of God. Now – Knowing that and how easy it is to manipulate those those feelings, uh, I, I I tend not to be taken by by any sorts of spiritual mechanisms uh, when it comes to drug use because I know that drugs can can tickle those 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 the spiritual feelings inside of you just like um you know a, a good hit of adrenaline after a long run can tickle you, tickle those or a lot you know being being awake for too too long can trigger those manic spiritual feelings so there you go your mileage may vary when you try DMT um sometimes it's spir- spiritual but but here's the thing if it is spiritual you cannot take anything that the spirits tell you in the DMT space to be true because I know from personal experience and from listening to other people and from following their experiences that the gnosis that they receive is often wrong. In fact, more times it's wrong than it's correct. So right there, I have to say, okay, if this was spiritual in origin and the spirits were really out looking out for us and trying to protect us or heal us or help us, they wouldn't send us wrong information. You know, like say, like I'm in my closet seeing high energy particle interactions and gravitons. And then I go back to, you know, the experimental research and I go, Oh, gravitons don't work like that. I was visualizing some bullshit that came out of my own brain. Uh, so, so, uh, you know, the information that you see in these DMT experiences is not guaranteed to be accurate in any way, in any way. So, Assigning them a spiritual force seems counterintuitive to me because if anything, the spiritual forces should be more infallible, not less fallible. To be honest with you, the most spiritual experiences <laughs> that I've that, that that I've had in my life have actually not been on anything. <laughs> well, right, yeah, and you can have spiritual experiences not being on anything. And I think maybe those are probably more authentic than the ones that you have, although there you could get in a huge argument about the authenticity of spiritual experience and how and when it arises, if it's chemical or if it's some sort of synchronistic magic or some kind of ritualistic magic that you have to go through. And that may be part of it. There may be part of the DMT experience that's ritual 
where if you follow the ritual going into it, you will have a more spiritual experience. The, but if you kind of do it casually <laughs> without the ritual, you may miss that. I could, you may miss that part of it. I could be misquoting Sasha Shulgin, but I think it was he who said, I am a tool maker. I make tools. So if if psychedelics or DMT specifically is taken, let's say, as a tool for uh, some kind of ritualistic practice, you know, again, as I it is, you as know, it is in right. ayahuasca cultures. Right. So, look, I, you know, I have a hammer, right, you know, in my hand and I can use this hammer to do a lot of things. Right. But what am I using the hammer for? I mean, the hammer in and of itself, you know, is not going to do me much good. But if I have some kind of intention to use the hammer to nail these two pieces of wood together or to uh, take a nail out of a board, you know, or something like that. Right. And if you're not paying attention, you can hit yourself in the thumb. Right. And, exactly. actually, and actually hurt yourself with right. the hammer. Of course. And right. the same so, thing is true with DMT. So these these are tools. And again, I don't know, as, again, as far as the validity of the spiritual experiences on DMT, I think can can be debated. But I, but, but I think that we can agree that it's a tool and that depending on how you use it depends on the experience, really. So if you're using it as a tool to channel spirits, then that's what's going to happen. Or if you're using it recreationally, it's, you know, it's entirely different. Um, just like the hammer, I could use it to nail boards together or I could use it to you know, throw it through a window of somebody I don't like. You know, one is used to create something to maybe help myself or help others. The other is used to, to destroy something, you know. And that's that's a very utilitarian uh, point of view. When you when you when you think about ayahuasqueros, uh, the Western paradigm, we tend to jump immediately to, oh, healers and clairvoyants. They're, you know, the shaman, the ayahuasca shaman is a nice person who wants to heal you and look into the future and help you make good decisions. But that's not true. They no, can also are, use ayahuasca for cursing, for casting spells. And there are plenty of brujos performing who black exist. magic. Right, right. So, so to them, it is a tool that can be used in lots of different ways. You know, it's not specifically a spirit molecule like, you know, the, 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 the Rick Strassman metaphor says. It is a spirit molecule, but it is also a black magic molecule, a cursing molecule. Any kind of ritual magic can be enhanced through the use of DMT. And I don't think you're going to see the people in the spirit molecule movies saying, oh, yeah, it's really great for enhancing black magic rituals. You should go out and try it that way because your demon summoning is going to be increased by 15 fold. They're not going to say that. They're going to say, oh, yeah, you're going to have peaceful enlightenment and the spirits are going to heal you and make you feel grounded and centered. That's just one application of the tool. Right. And again, you know, whether, you know, you know, we, we, we could debate the spiritual validity of these experiences, but I think that ultimately DMT itself is simply, at least in my view, it is a tool and it depends on how you use it. Now, I have my own personal idea, you know, ideas of how, of, you know, m you know, morality and things like that and of what, of how I, I may use it, you know, where I may um, live my life and so on and so forth. But that, but that might not be the same for everyone. And again, you know, as you said, a brujo can use ayahuasca to curse people, but a shaman can use ayahuasca, at the, you know, at the same time to heal someone of a serious illness. So now, again, going into the spiritual validity of it, um, I think is, is an entirely different question because if it is used as a tool for the spiritual, are those experiences authentic? 
and are those spiritual experiences authentic that is that is then the heart of the question we you know we can establish okay it's a tool but now even though we're using the tool is it producing an authentic experience so i would say that yes it's producing an authentic experience and i would say yes those spiritual experiences are valid but you have to look past that and say what is the value to be derived from those experiences because if you have an experience of you know coming into communion with the spirit and you have the real experience of that spirit getting up in your face and telling you a piece of information that you then remember later if that information turns out to be wrong what is the value of the experience well, and that's is- a really that's a really difficult question for people who take the MT because they don't like it when the spirits give them answers that are wrong. And I know from personal experience that most of the time they do give you answers that are wrong. And this is this is this is this is most frustrating for scientists and people of invention who take ayahuasca and smoke DMT and they have an envision of some enterprise or some experiment that they're going to do. That's going to say, oh, my God, I know exactly how junk DNA works now because I had a vision of, in ayahuasca of what, what the purpose of junk DNA is. And now I'm going to go back and spend four years of my life studying junk DNA to figure out if this vision was right. And oops, turns out it wasn't. So you, you have to want – are the DMT spirits being mean? Are they being purposely cruel? Or are these thoughts the products of our own imagination that are just as prone to error as any other thought that we have? And I think it's the second. I think that it's the product of our own imagination that's just as prone to error as any other thought we have. So if you can't test the validity of what you get in the spirit world, the value is the only value is the experience of the communion, not the information that comes out of it. Right. So the – and. And the question is, is the experience of – what is what is the value in the experience of the communion? It changes the way you feel about the world. It changes your perspective on the world, really, I think is, is what it comes down to. The value of that experience of you know making your imagination become visual and having these, these, these experiences of ghosts and whatnot or spirits – uh, it, 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 it change, it causes you to be, it's almost a, a very humbling experience. It makes you realize that, that you really don't know as much as you thought you knew about the world. If this sort of crazy thing can happen just from, you know, taking a small, tiny little small pinch of chemical powder. Um, and, and it, it makes you really question your own assumptions about reality. And I think ultimately that's a good thing. As long as you don't immediately jump into more incorrect assumptions about reality. And I think a lot of people do fall into that trap. They say, they drink ayahuasca, they have some breakthrough experience, and they say, everything I thought about reality up to now is wrong. Now my view of reality is this. And they, they almost immediately seal the deal with a new mythology as opposed to staying in that open state of wonder. You know, which is, I think, which is, I think, the biggest problem with the whole programming the ayahuasca trip thing is that when you leave psychedelic trips more open-ended, I think that's better for people than if you say you're going to get this experience and once you get it, it's over. That's a little bit more. That's not as helpful to people because then they they just swap one belief system for another and then they're still stuck stuck in the same place that they were. 
You know, actually, something that we had spoken about earlier today, I think, kind of permeates this conversation and does have um, relevance to uh, relevance to to what to what you and I are discussing. Which is which is the idea of silence that you know because you and I had a had a long discussion about monasticism earlier today. And I think that one of the things of value um, that can be applied even after, you know, a DMT experience or something like that is the value of silence and reflection, which is something that a lot of people don't want to do. Sitting in the silence and reflecting upon the experience that you've just had with, you know, the clearest of inner thoughts and, you know, conscience as opposed to latching onto something right away and making assumptions instead of going through and saying, well, I've had this experience, there are certain things that I'm thinking, but let me reflect and understand or attempt to interpret it. I think that people like to like to kind of jump to conclusions very quickly and just kind of continue rolling on like a train, you know, as opposed to making a stop and saying, wait a minute, let me evaluate the experience and you know, attempt to make some kind of sense instead of saying, well, I'm going to abandon everything that I know and go forward with this new kind of mythology. Right. And it's, 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 you know, it depends on the personality of the person who goes into it. I think people who are, are seeking something will definitely find something in the DMT experience or the ayahuasca experience. I'm not sure that they'll find exactly what it is that they're looking for, but it'll be something interesting, something to think about. Something that they, that will, um, you know, like you said, give them a, a lot to reflect upon. Uh, one of the things, one of my personal theories about psychedelics, and one that's becoming, I think, more more bandied about in the in the popular um, research, is that psychedelics activate the same component in the brain of memory consolidation that dreaming does. And basically, this is a process where the brain kind of scrolls tangentially through a lot of very similar interconnected related patterns and starts looking for new connections between them to make memory recall and and uh and memory imprinting more robust and faster and this is what happens this is what happens in the state of dreaming we start to consolidate all of the information that we aggregated during the day into pre-existing memories so that those things become integrated and as we do that, we sort of reopen old memories and reconsolidate them with the new information that we've just received. DMT, mushrooms, LSD, most of the tryptamine psychedelics that produce these long dreamlike trance states where you are forced to lie down and be in silence for a long period of time, they do dig through a lot of subconscious material very rapidly and start building new connections between old pieces of information. And that in and of itself is very, very valuable for uh, piecing together what we call identity, who we are and what we know and what we know about the world. And when you have a psychedelic trip, even though some of the explicit information that you get in the trip, like a, like a, like a, an elf may pop out of the experience and go, did you know the moon is made out of rubber? He, 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 and disappear. And you go, oh my God, the moon is made out of rubber. I never realized that. And then, you know, after you come down 20 minutes later, you go, oh, of course the moon isn't made out of rubber. But what does that mean? 
So you start having all of these, these sort of weird questions about the validity of the experience and the value of the experience. But at the same time, during the experience in your subconscious, the non-explicit material has sort of reorganized your memory structure around this new fantastical state that you were in. And some people, when they come out of the experience, they, they feel, uh, like, like they're more grounded or especially if they've had this long period of quiet integration at the end of the experience, like you're saying, I think that is really key to having people come out of the experience feeling more serene and grounded and have a better picture of their identity in the like scheme of the universe as opposed to just getting a hit and run DMT experience that feels sort of like an alien abduction experience, sort of like I've just been psychically violated, sort of like I don't know what just happened to me, and now I have to deal with it somehow. And this is this is one of the problems I I, I had with, with Rick Strassman's uh, research, where he would put people on a table with a blood pressure cuff in a hospital room with all of this machinery monitoring them, and then start an intravenous IV drip. And, of course, people are going to feel sort of these invasive, violating, um, you know, aliens are abducting me or spirits are coming at me or these crazy things are jumping on me and trying to, trying to uh, you know, get me off this table. Those are all set and setting kind of things, I think. And if you had done the experiment where, you know, in a hut in Peru – where everyone's drinking ayahuasca, they're not going to have those same experiences. So um, really the, the explicit, like, like, like dreaming, the dream itself isn't important. It's the neural rewiring that's going on underneath our conscious awareness of the dream. That is the important thing because that's what we're going to carry with us into our daily behavior. The explicit stuff is going to be stuff that we chew on philosophically, but it's not going to fundamentally change who we are at a neural level. It's all of that long, slow wave rewiring dreamlike process that changes who we are. And again, and I, I think people, people forget that. They get so focused on the fantastical stuff, the, the phantasmagorical stuff going on in front of them, or the intense emotions that they're feeling, that they forget that there's actual neural rewiring going on underneath all of that. The other thing that, that I think is – sorry. Uh, yeah, and, that, and that's the, that to me is the important part, let, is, is nurturing that rewiring as opposed to obsessing about what happens, what we experience at when that rewiring is going on. Not only that, but we must be humble in our assessments of these experiences and of these situations because I feel like that there are a lot of people, you know, or at least some people in the psychedelic community who, when they have these very profound experiences, go away from it. And, you know, and, and, I, and, I know, and I've met people like this before. Go away from it with this kind of sense of, I know more than everyone else now. You know what I'm saying? I am some, Yeah, they become very smug about right, it. Right. I am somehow now intellectually superior to other people based on the fact that I have had said experience. And I think that that kind of loses that, – that, 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 that really, if people have that attitude about it, that there's a loss – of the meaning behind some of these experiences, that there's a loss of that sense of oneness and that sense of community and that sense of love and so on that is just totally lost by, you know, and, and that sense of getting rid of the ego and becoming one is lost when 
you come back from it and the ego just goes right into overdrive mode and says and says, well, now now I know more than everyone else. Now I have achieved this kind of gnosis and therefore I am some kind of guru or I am some. Kind right. Of- this is this is this is the uh, what I call the uh, the the cosmic immortal shaman syndrome. Where somebody says, ha, I've had a psychedelic experience. I've been initiated into the galactic citizenry. I am an immortal shaman and I have seen the end of time and blah, 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 blah. And people get, get very into their own sense of, you know, I deranged myself and saw some magical things. And therefore, I know more about mysticism than you. And I've known people like that who got, who, who got, who got very smug and full of themselves, who, years later came back to me and said, I can't believe how snide I was about, about that because I thought I knew everything there was about mushrooms and DMT. And then I took this one trip and I had totally had my ass kicked and I didn't know what was going on. And it really humbled me. <laughs> but I think that going, and I think, and I think, yes, I think, I think that humility always has to be there. And but I, I think, think if it going gets lost, it, something gets lost in the experience. I think that going into it with that attitude of humility, I think actually will improve the experience almost, um, to a certain degree, you know, going into it and saying, you know, look, I don't know everything. I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not, you know, and then after coming out of it saying, I'm still not perfect and I still don't know everything and I still haven't achieved this kind of entheo, spiritual gnosis that I that I want it to and that there's still a long way to go because you know it's it, it it's as if someone has put a bow on it and that's the conclusion for some people and that now they know more but you know again I think it's really important that especially when people go into it that they retain that sense of of humility because it's important and I think really if when 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 people do get big egos because of this stuff, I think it almost goes contrary to um, the principles of the experience almost. Yeah, and I think you put your finger on something there, is that we are not perfect beings. And this whole idea of, of DMT being a spirit molecule or a shortcut to gnosis or enlightenment, um, it it makes us it, – it almost gives us a false – goal to strive for that oh we need to become these super spiritual beings that are perfectly grounded and at one with our environment and at peace with with the entire natural order and i i I almost think that's a tall order for a modern for any human to to adopt and when i take psychedelics and i try to have these really super spiritual experiences i'm usually wind i usually wind up either confronting myself or being confronted by some, you know, entity or higher source that says, why are you putting so much pressure on yourself to have these experiences? What, why do you feel the need to go out and have this gnosis? What do you think it will make you achieve? Or what do you think it'll, how do you think it'll make your life better? And I have to admit to myself, I don't really know why I'm doing it other than I'm curious. Well, I think that people and, and 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 realizing that that the only I mean the only reason to explore anything is because what we don't know. I mean that's really the only reason to explore anything is because we don't know and we're looking for answers. And if you go into the trip with that idea that I don't know, I'm looking for answers, you'll you'll you will be returned with a lot of stuff to chew on. 
But if you go in with that, that notion of, I know everything, I am the, you know, eternal shaman from the cosmic galactic center, you may wind up getting your ass kicked. And rightfully so, uh, you know, to, to, to a certain extent. You know, <laughs> not that I am anyone to pass judgment or that I have any right to do so. Because but, if you go in with that attitude, you're, you're more prone to take high doses under the illusion that, oh, I can handle high doses because I know all my stuff. And I've done that before, and I've wound up having doses that were too high. And, you know, luckily I had friends or my wife around to tell me, hey, you know, this is too high. You need to calm down. I never wound up running around in the street naked or, or anything like that. But that's only because I was lucky. You know, that's only because I was lucky enough to have to be in an, an environment where the moment I realized that I was too high and was losing touch with reality, there was somebody there to help me ground again, get grounded again. And uh, that's that's also very important is remaining grounded through the trip. Uh, otherwise, you can uh, you can really spiral out of control and lose sense of who and where you are uh, very easily. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know. And again, I think that approaching it with that sense of humility will 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 ultimately bring benefit. Uh, you know, and it's not just DMT, but a, but but approaching most things, I think, with a certain sense of humility. Right, is and this good. is this is one thing that I wanted to to get in here earlier in the show, but I had forgotten about it. Ultimately, DMT is a drug that acts on the nervous system. It's a vasoconstrictor. It, it works directly on, on nerves related to the cardiovascular system. It causes blood pressure to go up. It causes heartbeat to go up. It has, it's a very profound physiological drug. It's not just purely a mental, oh, let's stimulate our brain and get high and see things. The whole body changes when you take DMT. There's like a whole body change in metabolic rate, blood pressure, heartbeat, respiration, everything changes. So when you're smoking DMT, you're, you're, you're tripping out your entire body. You're, you're, you're tweaking yourself into a physiological state that would be considered, um, dangerous if it wasn't so short or if it wasn't, if you weren't able to modulate it through the dose that you were taking, because, uh, you know, it's, it's not DMT is, is the body considers DMT a toxin. The body wants to break DMT down and flush it out as quickly as possible. And even though DMT is created in trace amounts in some parts of the body, not, not the pineal gland, but there are tissues that could create, that could that create DMT, um, you know, in the lungs and there's other, there's other soft tissues, but, um, it, it's never created in enough amounts to make you, to make you high because the body breaks it down very quickly. It's like ammonia. The body produces ammonia in some of its reactions, but it also breaks it down very quickly because ammonia is toxic to a lot of organs. So the body goes into a very strong upheaval when DMT enters the system. It's like it's not supposed to be there, and it starts this crazy process of the body just wringing itself um, almost from a molecular level uh, all through the entire organism. So it has a profoundly um, almost like, oh, my God, I've poisoned myself. Oh, my God, I'm getting better. Thank God that's over kind of feeling to it. <laughs> but there's also all of this crazy stuff that happens in the middle that's quote-unquote spiritual. 
But I think a lot of the spiritualness is it, of it goes along with the panic that you feel like, oh, my God, I could almost die here. Or maybe I am dead. And then you come down and you realize, oh, no, I'm not dead. I'm getting better now. Whew. Thank thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when people say it's a spirit molecule, I have to think, well, why wouldn't why would you call a toxin a spirit molecule? It doesn't make sense. Uh, it, it, like you say, it is a tool that can be used spiritually. Um, but it can also be very dangerous. You know, people write me and they say, I smoked some DMT and my heartbeat got so fast it turned into a tone. It was no longer a thumpa 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 thumpa. It went and suddenly my heartbeat was a tone. I couldn't even feel it beating anymore. It was so fast. And I got, I think to myself, that's, that's hardcore. I mean, that's like shooting your body into, into orbit. So people need to remember that this is something that works on the, on the blood vessels, on the cardiovascular system. Uh, it tweaks the whole body. It tweaks every 5-HT receptor in the body, the serotonin receptor, which is, you know, the most prevalent all over the body, in the stomach and the brain, all the blood vessels, heart tissue, blood cells. So, um, you know, it's a full body attack when it comes on and i think that may be one of the most profound things about it is that when you smoke it it affects the whole body it comes on so fast and it is so profoundly hallucinatory it it's 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 just it's so overwhelming it there's no other explanation for it than you know spiritual or near-death experience we don't have proper metaphors for it let's put it that way well, we're we're actually coming to the end of our program tonight. So, do you have any final thoughts that you want to give us on, uh, you know, on the, you know, is there any final thoughts you have on DMT and the whole topic before we uh, go off tonight? Well, yeah, I mean, this is well, we can maybe maybe seed a little bit of a conversation that we might have with Steve Byer in a couple of weeks, which is the crossover between DMT and the Catholic Church that you see in these ayahuasca communities, where um, you know. Uh, and we talked about it with Crystal Cole a little bit, which was that integrating the psychedelic experience into into religious ceremony, uh, that seems to me to be maybe one of the places where I think, you know, it may be useful. It may be really useful because you know I've 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 DMT. They, people talk about you know DMT is or ayahuasca as a as a healing potion you know shaman use it to heal serious ailments but there's also clinics in south america where they use dmt and ayahuasca to treat people and the clinical results are not that great i mean they're not always profound miracle healings with ayahuasca you know it's a lot of slow therapy that takes weeks and weeks and sometimes people get better and sometimes they don't so thinking about ayahuasca as like a miracle drug or a silver bullet for spirituality or some kind of answer to the Western spiritual crisis is, is, is wrong or off the base as far as I'm concerned. But using it as a tool that you can incorporate into existing spiritualities, you know, is something that I would like to see investigated in the future. Uh, seeing as though it is so powerful and people do want the experience, there should be a legitimate place for them to seek it out where they don't have to put themselves in danger and they don't have to put themselves at the mercy of, uh, you know, a shaman or somebody who may be a brujo who is not out to, you know, 
make sure that they are spiritually enlightened and grounded, but maybe want to take advantage of them and steal all their money. Right. So as long as there are people out there who are seeking the DMT experience and the spiritual experience, there are going to be hustlers out there who want to take advantage of these people. Oh, of course. And I think people who are seeking the ayahuasca experience should, should check themselves and try not to be so naive and credulous that they believe everything that they hear in the spirit molecule documentary or everything that a shaman tells them. They need to be a little bit more educated than that when they jump into the experience. Otherwise, it's like jumping into big wave surf without knowing how to swim. You're just going to get tossed around, and who knows where you're going to wind up at the end. And that's really the main thing. I, I, I the, the only other thing I wanted to say was that, you know, in the modern framework of people who are seeking spiritual answers, there needs to be something more organized than, you know, a bunch of shaman in Peru who are cornering the market on spiritual awakening. It seems a little crazy to me right now that that's going on. Well, uh, I, I, I actually don't have any final comments. You've basically summed up <laughs> everything that there, that there was to say. Um, I think it, as far as the safety and all that goes with it. So ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm your host, Jake. And of course, uh, founder of dose nation and co-host James Kent, James, of course, thank you for being with us as always. Uh, it's been fun we'll uh, see you again next week yeah we'll see you again next week at uh, 5 p.m eastern time and uh, make sure that you uh keep on the lookout for uh, our interview coming up with uh steve Bayer um and ramez nam and so on so make sure you just keep uh you know keep an eye on the facebook page facebook.com forward slash dose nation and, uh, and thank- if there's anybody you want to hear uh hear us interview or talk talk with on the podcast let us know and and we'll get them yeah yeah please please do contact at dosenation.com uh, and of course, thank you to Sepia Radio for syndicating our programs as always. We appreciate it and we love you for it. So, all right. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next week, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Have a good night. 